We have been studying the life of Paul. Next year, our hope is to study the doctrine and teaching of Paul in a very specific way. But as we study the life of Paul, we're taking time to look at various letters he wrote during his life. We're actually studying his third missionary journey right now, which Luke tells us about in the book of Acts. And it's on this third missionary journey where Paul wrote a number of his longer letters. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. Paul also, while in Corinth on this third missionary journey, wrote a letter to the church at Rome. That's what we're talking about this morning. Now, as I introduce it to you, do you remember if you were in our church history class, Brother Martin? Brother Martin was sitting down one day reading Paul's book we call Romans, his letter to the church at Rome. And Brother Martin was very, very moved. God's spirit moved on Brother Martin and basically started the Reformation movement there as, as Martin embraced an understanding that put him at odds at least with the power structure of much of the Catholic Church at the time. So it is a very powerful letter. It's a letter that has been pivotal in the development of the church. And it's a letter that is Paul's longest. We have 40 minutes. I want to cover the whole letter. Okay? We'll do it in more detail later. But right now, let's just try and get a feel, a whiff, a fragrance of what this letter tastes like. And to do that, I think we first have to ask ourselves, what do we know about the church in Rome? First of all, the Vatican had not been built yet. This, is a, this picture is an anachronism. It's, it's, it's not timely. However, at the time Paul wrote the letter to the Roman church, the Roman church was a strong and large church, most likely. The reason the church started, we don't know specifically, but in Acts chapter 2, we read that there were Jews from Rome who were present at Pentecost on the day God established his church and the Holy Spirit came down and 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. Among those, Luke tells us, were Jews from Rome who likely would have taken their understanding of their salvation, taken the church, taken the story of the Messiah back to Rome with them. That most likely is how the church started. By the time Paul's writing his letter, we're in the 50s A.D. So we put this into time frame. If the church starts around 30 or so A.D., Paul writes 31, something in that range. Paul writes his letter in the early to mid-50s. Okay? In the early to mid-50s, there was some turmoil going on in the Jewish-slash-Christian community in Rome. We know about the turmoil. By the way, it wasn't the Colosseum. That's still 20 years from being built. But it makes us think turmoil in Rome, so I threw it up there anyway. The turmoil in Rome we can read about. There was a fellow named Suetonius. 
Suetonius, about 50 years later, is in charge of the, the imperial archives at Rome. He's like head librarian, okay, for the emperor's library. He's got all the records. He later becomes the personal secretary to the emperor Hadrian. Suetonius sits down and decides he's going to write the definitive history of the lives of the Caesars. And so he starts writing it. We've got it today. We can read it. It's called Lives of the Caesars by Suetonius. Suetonius writes, and he writes about the emperor Claudius, who is emperor at this time in Rome. Actually, shortly before this time, but in the 50s. Here's what he says. Suetonius says, Claudius expelled Jews from Rome because, quote, the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus. That's the way you would say Christ, except he used an E instead of an I. Suetonius was not a brilliant speller, at least when it came to matters of our faith. But most scholars, 90% scholars agree, He's talking about some kind of disturbance that was going on because of the Jesus movement in the Jewish community in Rome. And so the emperor says, okay, Jews, leave. We don't need this. And he kicks them out. We know about this also from the history book we call Acts. Luke wrote about it. Here's what Luke made a reference to. Paul is in Corinth, and while in Corinth, Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Same story. We don't know a lot of the details, but as a result, Aquila and Priscilla go and meet Paul. So all of the Jews leave Rome. Now, let's take time, since I've used all of these out-of-date pictures, let's throw up a website. This is the Church at Rome's website from the time. Um, the screens on the side don't quite show the whole thing. You may have to see the, the beginning, but it's got the little tabs on the side. And if we click on one of them, let's say the History tab, we'll read... We were started by Jews who heard the story of the Jewish Messiah and his resurrection in Jerusalem. This message was brought back to the Jewish community and has even been shared to some Goyim Gentiles. Okay? That's what we believe was the start of the church. It's a reasonable assumption. If you look at the staff then on the church website... The senior pastor is some Jewish fellow. The youth pastor is a Jewish fellow. The Gentile outreach is headed up by another Jewish fellow. The treasurer is a Jewish fellow. The song leader is a Jewish fellow. And because we're an integrated church, we're going to have Jews and Gentiles as ushers. Now, what happens when Claudius boots out all of the Jews? Boom! Whoa! Vacancy at the church. Someone better get the webmaster to work. Unfortunately, he was Jewish and he's gone too. 
So now what are we going to do? Well, we've got this guy who's working at it. Welcome to the Gentile church at Rome. Pastor? Gentile man, youth pastor, Gentile man, Gentile man, Gentile man, Gentile man, and more Gentiles. That's all well and good. But you know what happens a couple years later? The Jews came back. They're allowed back in. Thank you for keeping my chair warm. Now get up. That's where I sit. Gee, I'm glad you've been pastoring the church for two years. My turn, after all it was our church to start with, oh, did you forget Jesus was Jewish? We're the ones, go back and read the history of the church statement, we're the ones, brought them over. Now, what do they do? How do they fit together? Well, into this situation, which we know about biblically, by the way, when Paul writes the letter to the Romans. In the 16th chapter, he greets Priscilla and Aquila. They made it home. The Jews had returned, including the Christian Jews. So, into this situation, Paul writes the letter to the Romans. And that's what we have. How does he do it? What does he have to say? Paul's never been there. It's the first letter he's written that we have where he's writing to a church he's not been to. Later on, he'll apologize and say, I hope you didn't think it was too bold of me to write. But Paul writes them, and he writes a letter that God's used to communicate his truth, not only to the church at large in so many incredible ways, but to individuals. This letter turned my life around. This letter grew my understanding of what my God did for me in ways that I could never adequately express. And so I want to convey some of that to you as we look through the letter. I don't know that I can get into much detail. I urge you to read this letter carefully. The words of the spirit of life in this letter are much stronger than my own. But in the interest of this class, we shall look at it together. Paul writes as an apostle of the gospel truth that brings all nations, Jew and Gentile alike. He wants the Jews and the Gentiles to both read and understand this letter. I, Paul, he says, am writing as an apostle of a gospel truth that brings all nations, Jewish and Gentile alike, to truth and obedience. This is a gospel that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of. Now, if you've been in this class with me before, I've dissected Paul's usage of that word gospel. When Paul uses the word gospel, what does he mean? Does anybody remember? Death, resurrection of Jesus. That's the good news. The good news is Jesus died and was resurrected for us. When Paul talks about the gospel, Paul has the cross of Christ and the resurrected Jesus in mind. That's good. That's the good news. That's the really good news. And he'll set it out in this letter. He says, it doesn't shame me though. I'm not ashamed of the fact Jesus had to die for me. Oh, I'd love to stand up here and tell you I am such a good guy. Me and God, we're like this. 
because we're working on the same page. But the truth of the matter is, I'm not working on the same page, save for the fact that he keeps dragging me onto it. The truth of the matter is, you put my life under a microscope, and not only historically have I walked away from God's truth and God, but I still struggle every day with the same issues. At least some of them. And so I'm here to tell you I need the gospel. I need Jesus to have died for my sins. It doesn't shame me to tell you that. You know why? Paul says why. Because the power of God to save everyone who believes is in the gospel. That's the only way anybody's getting saved. That's the only way anybody makes it to heaven. See, on earth, we got a problem. We are a walking time bomb of a planet and a people. The fuse has been lit. Nobody's doing it right. And God's a judging God. He is. And He's got principles of judgment. You know what they are? Gary, if you live perfect, you go to heaven. If you don't, you go to hell. Those are His principles. Ken, you don't make any mistakes. Good news, baby. You're in. In like Ken. <laughs> but you make one. Oh, and let's talk specific. You do something with just a twinge of selfishness in it. That alone is sin. You make one mistake, you're going to hell. That's God's principle of judgment. Now, that's a major problem for the world. Jews, don't sit around and say, yeah, those Gentiles are in trouble because you're not any better off. Yes, you have your Bible. Yes, God gave you the Old Testament. But it's not what you have. It's what you do. It's what David was talking about this morning. It's not what you have. It's what you do. You're not any better off, Jews. Gentiles, you've been given over to depravity. You're practicing all kinds of evil, homosexuality, greed, murder, envy, strife. Jews, you're not doing any better. Let me show you what. There's some differences and some things in common you Jews and Gentiles have as you sort through this church issue. Here's the difference. Jews, you had the Torah. God gave you the law, gave you this special dispensation from Mount Sinai. Gentiles, you didn't get that. All right, there's a difference. But you want to know what you have in common? Boom. Boom. And this is what the psalm said. The psalmist writes, no one's righteous, not one says, no one even does a single good deed. That's what it says. That's what Scripture says. If we were from Missouri, then show me. Show me someone who's righteous. You show me the best of the best 
of the best. Nobody's got it. Nobody's got it. And that's a problem. By God's principles of judgment, if the letter ends in Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 20. But there's verse 21, which is a corner that's turned. Where Paul says, but, with the most important but word in the entire New Testament, where he says, but, there is another righteousness beyond you doing it yourself. But, now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been shown. It's there. You can be righteous and holy before God, totally apart from doing what you're supposed to in the law, how you live. You know where it is? Where this righteousness has been shown? That's the gospel. This is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no exception. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Here it is, guys. Gentiles, you're all going to hell by God's principle of judgment. Jews, you are too. Except for the fact that Jesus Christ died for you. And that puts you all in the same boat. You go to heaven because of Jesus Christ and your faith in Him. Now, this isn't just true today. This is true for people of all time. The cross stands in the middle of all time. You go to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was patient and overlooked sins. He promised Abraham salvation, right? How's Abraham going to heaven? Is Abraham going to heaven because he was that good? Abraham's going to heaven because Jesus Christ died for his sins. See, Jesus Christ had to die even if God was going to end the world on Easter Sunday. Even if there was never going to be a church, Jesus still had to die. Because God had promised eternal life to Abraham and others. So God was obligated to get them there. And there is no door. And no one goes to the Father. Save through Jesus. So Jesus died to cover the sins of the people in the Old Testament. Just as much as the new. And if you go back and see. You'll see it's not because Abraham was good enough. Or because Abraham was following the law good enough. It says Abraham believed the Lord had faith in God and God counted the faith as righteousness. Now, lest we get confused, that was several chapters and years before God gave the law, before God even gave circumcision. And that's why... We've got that. And that's why God wants you to hold on to it. That's what gives your life meaning today. That's what helps you endure the tough times. You see, we can understand that God's faithfulness is going to take care of us. It brings about peace. Here's how it works. God loves us enough to die for us. 
He loves us enough to do all of this. So when we're suffering, just like the dominoes fall, that suffering is going to produce perseverance, an ability to walk through suffering. That's going to produce character. That's going to produce hope. We're going to live our lives dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's doing with our vision fixed firmly to that goal where He's taking us. And anything in the way is merely something we walk through with God by the grace of God to the eternity of God. You want to know how much He loved us? He never waited for us to ask for help. He died for us while we were still enemies, while we were sinners, while we were at enmity, as Pastor Fleming said this morning, with God. That's when he died for us. Oh, it's one thing. I could, I could understand a little bit more had God said, hey, I'm going to wait until these Yehus ask me to do something for him and then I'll do it. But he didn't. While we're at war, while we're sinners, God comes. I mean, lots of folks might give their life for someone that, that's good to them. Or someone that's good, period. But God's love is so great, he gives his life for those who are evil. And it's a real interesting way God worked this out. I loved Pastor Fleming having the mirror up there. It's almost like some mirror thing that's happened here in the history of our planet. God's got some real poetic justice to the way this works out. I mean, think about it. We got Adam. Okay? Adam, one man, sins. And through the sin of Adam, the sin spreads to all of us, and boom, we're headed to death. Okay? Now, comes Jesus, one man, and through Jesus comes righteousness, which spreads to all who believe, who then have life, eternal life. The fuse is no longer there. Now, some of you may be sitting back saying, woohoo, this is great. He died for our sins. I'm going to make his death so important by going out and sinning even more. I can really make the Lord look really good by being really bad. And if any of you are saying, hey, let's just kick off our shoes and go sinning. Paul says, I have two words for you. Meganoito. That's Greek. You need to learn that. Meganoito. Meganoito. Okay, that means like, heavens, no. No way. Absolutely not. It was a colloquial phrase in the Greek. It's not like prim and proper Queen's English. We, you know. Don't you know the Queen's English? Well, of course she's English. What else would she be? It's not like the, yeah, the Queen's English. I love that joke. It's not, <laughs> no one else does, but I do. It's not like 
the Queen's English. This is a, this is a real slangy phrase Paul's using. It, it really could translate real good like, no way. Okay? And he says, no way. Don't you know? Heavens know. Don't you know that you died to sin? The whole point of this was to get you free from sin. The whole reason it happens is to get you free from sin. Don't think, oh, I can go sin. Happy me. Happy days are here again. No, not at all. Now, you may be thinking, oh, I don't even know why we got this thing then. This thing, if it's not going to get us to heaven, and what... You know, this almost looks bad. This is God gave us something that's, that's, that's just showing us how bad we are. This is going to put me on a guilt trip. Well, you're seeing it wrong. You're seeing it wrong. See, here's what the law did. People were already sinning. They were already doing things that violate God's character. The law just sort of shone light on it. When the law comes, you start seeing the sin for what it is. See, the sin was already there. You're already doing things that are out of character with God. Things that cannot live eternally with God. This just shows you what you're doing wrong already. Now, where does that leave us? I don't know about you. Actually, I do. Because <laughs> you're not really any different than me. There's a fight going on in Mark Lanier daily. See, there are things I want to do. I just can't get myself to do them. There are things I don't want to do. And I just can't always seem to avoid them. And it's like this constant war because I know I'm born again and I know God's Spirit's within me and I know I'm eternally His. But yet, I'm still stuck in this fallen nature and body. He's not redeemed my body yet. He's, I, 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 who's going to save me from this? Oh, there is an answer. Jesus. The civil war that's going on inside me, Jesus is the answer. Jesus brings the salvation. And there's a, 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 a law. We've been talking about the law. Let me tell you a different law. Let me tell you, there's a law of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's a law that we are alive in Jesus Christ. And the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has set me free from this vicious cycle of sinning and dying inside. There really is. A different me. Little by little, every day, Jesus is changing me. He does it in my life. He does it in my prayers. You see, even when I pray, sometimes I don't know how to pray like I should. But God's Spirit's there. He's interceding with groans that are too deep for words. I can't even tell you about them. God is, is ministering to me. I am, I am his holy project, and so are you. You are God's project. God's at work in your life. Now, where does that leave us? That leaves us 
in God's love. And I ask you, what can separate you from that? You tell me anything strong enough to pull you from this love of God. Name it. Oh, I'm not good enough. So he loved you anyway. Yeah, but I'm still bad. Yeah, you were horrible when he died for you. Yeah, but I've done really bad stuff. Yeah, Paul's a murderer. Get in line. Yeah, but, but I've, been, I've been bad in my own way. Yes, yeah, so is he. Get in line. Yeah, but he, God may not love me. I had one guy tell me one time, bless his heart, I love him to death. I spent six months counseling a man who had been baptized into Christ and then decided later that he hadn't been baptized properly, so he got rebaptized. And then he came to me and said, no, I think I was baptized right the first time. So I'm afraid when I got rebaptized, it's like a double negative. <laughs> and now I've lost the first baptism. I said, what are you telling me? And when it all boiled down to it, what he was really telling me is, I'm afraid I've done something that separates me from the love of God. He had not. Nothing. Angels. Satan himself. Nothing can separate you from the love that God has for you. Nothing. Paul says, you know, you might be thinking, then why has God turned his back on the Jews? If nothing separates from the love of God... Why has he turned his back on the Jews? Paul says, no. You don't understand. The absence of full Jewish belief in God doesn't mean God turned his back on the Jews. If anything, it means the Jews turned their back on God. But God from the very beginning has always been a God who picked and chose. And he never chose based on whether or not you were Jewish. Whether you had those genes... He never chose whether or not, he didn't choose you because you were doing good stuff. Hey, you go back to Jacob and Esau. He says, I'm picking Jacob. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And that's before they were born. And it's never been all the offspring of Abraham. Look at Ishmael. God's always been a God who has picked, if you will out of his love. Now the reciprocal side of that though and this is the depths of God's wisdom and foreknowledge we've always had the choice. Want to know more about that? You'll get to when Mark Lanier teaches a class on it next year, God willing. But for now let's just say don't ever say God's not fair. He's the potter. He makes the pot he wants to make. And the pot doesn't have a right to say, I wanted to be a bowl. Let the potter do what he's going to do. And if you're a cup, be a cup. If you're a plate, be a plate. If you're a bowl, go bowling. 
Because God's got this, it's like a tree, a big old olive tree. And this Jew Gentile said, let me tell you something. It's a big old olive tree, and he took a bunch of Gentile branches and he grafted them in. And they're part of that tree, baby. It's not, oh, gee, this is an olive branch that's been grafted into the tree. No, that's an olive tree, and that's one of the branches. It belongs now. It's part of the tree. By the way, Gentiles don't get too uppity. God's not through with the Jews. He's got some more grafting to do. And before time is out, you're going to see some Jews being grafted back in in a major way. That's the depths of the riches of the unsearchable knowledge of God, which is so profound. So where does that leave you? Does it leave you fussing and fighting over who's in control? Does it leave you jockeying for power and position? No. It leaves you where Pastor Fleming told you this morning. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. All of you sacrifice. All of you give. Let your brain be metamorphized. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change your way of thinking. Bob Dylan, going to change my way of thinking. Give myself a doing set of rules. <laughs> One of his Christian albums. That's what you got to do. So, toward that end, let me give you some practical things about changing your way of thinking. First of all, don't start thinking too highly of yourself. You are who God made you. Okay? That's nothing to brag about. I'd like to compliment myself on the parents I chose. <laughs> I'd like to compliment myself on what God has done for me. You are who God made you. And so is the person sitting next to you. And don't think he made you more. I, I, one of our children is fond of saying, Daddy, if you had a choice between saving my life or saving one of my sister's lives, who would you save? <laughs> because she is desperate to get the leverage on her sisters that I must like her more. No, I, it, that just doesn't compute. Now, I want you all to genuinely love each other. Okay? That means hate evil. Love and hate are not opposites. Genuine love hates evil. Let your love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Don't worry about getting revenge. Let God get revenge. All you got to do is just live a life of love. That's what the whole law is wrapped up in. That's really what all of this is about. You just need to live a life of love. Respect each other. Give to each other. Take care of each other. By the way, live respectfully to the government too. Because God's put them over you. You may not like it, but you've got to pay your taxes. You may not like your elected officials. There are some I'm not too fond of, but you pray for them anyway because they need your prayers and God needs to be working. Those that you do like, pray for them too, lest they change. Um, don't go around borrowing from each other. That's not a cool thing. The cool thing is to owe love to your neighbor. Don't put yourself in the position of 
the Rolling Stones. Under my thumb. See, you start borrowing, you get it, the relationships get out of whack. Um, as you look around and as you see the diff way different people are, love the weaker brother. Don't steamroller over him. Okay? Some people are m having troubles with how do you eat meat that's not kosher or how do you eat meat that may have been sacrificed to an idol or, or do we celebrate Easter or do we not celebrate Easter and how do we, you know, just, just take care of each other. See the heart here? Get the heart. Have this love. Now, in closing, in closing, as you think about the Jewish-Gentile thing getting back together here, let me, uh, let me be not so subtle. I'd love to come see you, but the Greeks have given money to the Jews in Jerusalem, and I've got to take it over there. See that not so subtle message? While you're over there trying to, okay, Gentile church, Jewish church, who's in charge, who's a, I'd love to come help you sort this out, but I can't right now because there are some Greeks over here in Corinth who've given money to the Jews in Jerusalem that need it, and I've got to take it there. Points for home. The gospel really is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's true for everybody in this room. There's not a person in this room. I've got a young girl I want you to pray for. You don't know her name. I probably shouldn't use her name. Um, she's a friend of, of uh, one of my daughters. And uh, she's an avowed atheist. Her parents are atheists. They're intellectual atheists. It's not just because they want to play golf on Sundays. I mean, this is something they've thought about. She's very, very bright. And I told her the other day, I said, you come over a lot. She said, yes, sir, Mr. Mark. Is that bad? I said, no, it's wonderful. I said, I love you coming over. But I said, sometime this summer when you come over, I want to talk to you. She said, did I do something bad? I said, oh, not at all. I just think you're brilliant and I can't understand something. And I need your, your help. She said, well, what is it? I said, I'll tell you when we have time to talk. This isn't the time or place. And I want to sit down with her and say, you are so brilliant. How on earth could you be an atheist? I'm not maybe the most brilliant guy in the world, but I'm not stupid. I've thought through this. And I want to tell you, there's not anything else that makes sense to me of the condition of the world than what's explained in this Bible. There's nothing else that makes sense of this civil war. There's nothing else that makes sense of why I think there is right and wrong. There's nothing else that makes sense of, of why. And I'm really excited to talk to her. Because there is a God who made us. He made every one of you. And he loves every one of you. Just as much as the person sitting to your left and your right. 
Doesn't matter if your spouse is more committed to the Lord than you are. The Lord is equally committed to you. Doesn't matter if your children or your parents or your neighbor seems more convicted. God is equally convicted in his love for you. And he died for you. Or your sins. Or mine. Because he loves us. And he wants nothing to stand in the way. And it's not something you got to work for. It's not something you got to save up money and buy. It's not something you got to go take out a loan. It is easier to get salvation eternally than it is a new car. And you don't have to pay gas. It's so free that everybody thinks there must be a catch. It's a righteousness from God apart from law that's been made known. If you do not know about this, please come talk to me. Please come talk to any, half the people in this class. Nothing to be ashamed about. And then those of us who know Jesus, and I love the way Pastor Fleming made this point five times I counted this morning in his dissertation on James. He did such a great job of saying this was written to Christians. Because he never wants to confuse teaching live right, live right, live right with get saved, get saved, get saved. They're different. You get saved so you can live right. If you're not saved, you're not going to live right. Just can't pull it off. You're enslaved to sin. Oh, you might do good for a week, a month. I've met some pretty nice people who are as far from the Lord as I am from Mars. But they're not there. And that's what he calls us to. Thank you for coming this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for loving us, for reaching down while we were yet sinners and touching us. And we, I confess right now, that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And without Him, Lord, I would be totally lost. Without Your love, I would have no hope. Without Your care, I would not have purpose in my life. Without Your protection, I would not know which way to turn. I need You every day. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray for my friends, those I haven't met. And ask that your Holy Spirit would reach down and touch their heart and reveal to them not only their need for you, but your solution to their life. And the joy that comes in knowing you as Lord and as Savior. We pray through this death of Christ, which allows us to talk to you so boldly. Amen.